1: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
2: This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, This is the holiday season, as uh, most everybody knows. And one of the themes and and one of the sort of the pervasive topics that we like to discuss between Thanksgiving and New Year is archaeological matters that are related to the holiday season, just to sort of lighten it up, to uh, put a, a nice exclamation point or punctuation point to the end of the year and to look forward to a lighter and more prosperous New Year coming up. And in that light, uh, my guest today is uh, Tamra Thompson, who is a maritime archaeologist with uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society, specifically associated with maritime preservation and the archaeology program over there. Her research has uh, resulted in the nomination of 39 Great Lakes shipwrecks to the National Register for Historic Places. And, of course, we've discussed maritime archaeology in a number of programs in the past, and now we're sort of keying in on a couple of additional interesting topics on this. uh, Ms. Thompson has uh, received awards from the Association of the Great Lakes Maritime History, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Preservation Society, And uh, here's a a really interesting fact. In 2014, she was inducted into the Women Divers Hall of Fame. Tamara has worked as photographer, researcher, and research diver on projects, including the USS Monitor, and she's done that with NOAA and uh, she's worked on the RMS Titanic, and we'll probably look at that one as we go into this uh, discussion further. And she has also been associated with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Tamara, thank you so much for appearing on the program.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
2: So let's get into some interesting topics about your background. I think that would be something <laughs> exciting. The Women Diver... Hall of Fame. Talk to me about that.
3: <laughs> well, it was quite an honor to be inducted. So many of the women that are that are in the Women's Diver Hall of Fame are um, conservationists. So they're working on protecting the ocean and marine uh, animal advocates. And um, it's um, it's a really interesting group of of women who are very passionate about anything um, to do with um, with the sea. So I'm not really involved with the sea. I'm here in the Great Lakes, but, um, but I do find a number of connections, and, um, and I really find the group fascinating to be a member of.
2: So tell me how you got started in maritime archaeology generally <laughs> and underwater quests. And, I mean, there are many places you can do that here in the United States, about four or five schools, so why don't you tell me about that?
3: Um, I come into the field in a very non-traditional manner. So I actually have a master's degree in genetics. And yeah, um, and so I was working for the geology and geophysics department um, at the University of Wisconsin Madison. And the woman I was working for, Jillian Banfield, won the MacArthur Genius Grant, so the National Science Foundation's grant. She was—they uh, you know give you an amount of money to do anything you want, really, except for pay your own salary. And she decided she did not want to be in Wisconsin; it was way too cold. And so she took the lab and moved to Berkeley. And um, I'd spent a good number of years with her um, looking at. Um, historic lead mines in the southwestern part of our state, and um, setting up scientific um, experiments. So I came to the historical society really as um, a scientific diver, um, able to work underwater to collect data. And I worked with the archaeologists here for um, a good number of years. And um, just recently, um, I'd been promoted to um, to kind of lead our program. Um, but there, are, you know, I'm one of two. Leaders. That are here uh, working on uh, submerged cultural resources in the state.
2: So, your research was still, uh, you, you say you went down to UC Berkeley, but you did your research basically in Wisconsin?
3: I did not go to Berkeley with the lab. When the lab moved, um, everyone left except for me. I was married at the time, and I see. Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I pursued other interests here. And the job of the State Historical Society opened up, and um, there was an opportunity. They they needed um, a, a historic preservation specialist to work alongside the um, the archaeologists here, and they needed someone that was able to work underwater, which apparently is a a difficult skill to to have, and so um, so I fit in in that manner. I also had some um, some skills that were were valid for them i uh, I had some experience working with uh, mosaics photo mosaics. So we had done some photography work in the lead mines, and um, uh, we were able to stitch that together and create like panoramas uh, to get a view of what the bacterial mats looked like in the mines. And so, um, so I, I brought that skill with me, and we were able to start putting mosaics together here. And we're still doing that. We're really expanding our knowledge, and we're now working with um, SFM, structure for motion, and making like three D models of shipwrecks. So, so.
2: Did Wisconsin have, uh, did the state actually, uh, the State Historic Preservation Office have a, a shipwreck or an underwater archaeology program for a while or is it relatively new?
3: Yeah, our program started in nineteen eighty seven and it was really as a response to the Indian Shipwreck Act. And there's been a number of um, archaeologists who have been in um, in this position, um, who have worked for a good number of years. We started out our first was David Cooper, who's now with the um, National Park Service. He's the submerged culture or sorry, the cultural resource manager for Apostle Islands National Lakeshore. And then um, after that uh Um, A number of people who have gone on to work uh, for NOAA in the NOAA National Marine Sanctuary System were here in this office and um and i i've worked um side by side with a number of them and um and now uh we have another woman who's here that's working with me it's kind of nice to work with a, another woman her name is Caitlin Zant, and she's just a graduate from the um East Carolina uh program the program in maritime studies there so she's just completed her masters and um and so she and i share an office together
2: So uh, I I think we had mentioned this earlier, and we've certainly discussed this uh, on a number of programs, that there are only four or five schools in in this country, certainly, that offer these programs, one of which, of course, is Eastern Carolina University and and Texas A&M comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just wondering how um, you actually what, what your first projects were and how you got your certification because those are questions that even though we've done a number of programs on the topic we really haven't gotten into the nuts and bolts of getting certified and bringing together uh, subaqueous exploration and <laughs> archaeology. So why so, don't you tell us a little bit about that pathway and that uh, career track?
3: So, so your um, your question is about scientific diving.
2: Uh, yeah basically or or just yeah, the scientific diving and again, getting into the field okay. and, and how you got started, what motivated you, okay. and, and the, those sorts of things, which I think a lot of people would like to know about
3: sure um, so um, so I really wanted to to dive um, really through high school my, uh, I begged my father, we lived in Indianapolis uh, to uh, learned to scuba dive and I was told every year that next year, next year, next year. And when I came to college um, at the University of Wisconsin, it was offered as a class and I took it there. So I took the open water scuba diver course there. And I met a lot of great people. And um, Wisconsin is cer- certainly um, heavy in the sciences. And so there were opportunities presented to me to learn and work underwater. Uh, University of Wisconsin does not have a scientific diving program. And um, I wanted to learn more and I wanted to be involved underwater, um, it, it not just swimming around and looking at things, but actually um, doing work that um, that was for sort of the greater good. Um, and uh, I wanted to be able to contribute, and so um, I uh, I was asked to go and um, and work with um, volunteer for the um, Texas A and M program at Galveston. And uh, Dr. Tom Eilif works there and he is um, a marine biologist, but he works with um, animals that live in caves. And so I, from uh, from getting my my um, open water and my advanced open water through um, you know, the traditional means, I then went and I did a scientific diving course and I started and a cave diving course, and um, I started volunteering to collect animals that lived in caves um, with uh, with Dr. Iliff, and that also permitted me to travel quite a bit. So I got to experience um, a lot of places um, that had uh, that I had. Not even thought I would be able to go to to be able to collect um, animals that were cave adapted um, and uh, and help him with his research. And in the process of traveling around with him and volunteering for these various um, uh, expeditions, I then met uh, some archaeologists because as we were going into um, some of these sites, some of them in Mexico, um, we were encountering um, cultural resources called you know uh, pots and um, uh, submerged sites which uh, which had been uh, reclaimed as the water level came up and so then I volunteered for for those those uh, researchers and um, eventually that led me back here to Wisconsin so and that was all you know volunteering on my time off and that type of thing um, and um, and pursuing um, looking for different places to dive and different int- things that interested me and I came to work for Julie In Banfield at the University of Wisconsin, and um, and so um, we started setting up projects to look at biofilms. So um, they're uh, bacterial layers that are in these submerged lead mines. And so I enjoyed I designed the experiments. I enjoyed writing with uh, with her. Um, I contributed to a couple papers that were uh, printed in um, Journal Science. And um, and so, you know, I'm very fortunate to, to have made that connection. And when she left and she went to Berkeley, um, she also introduced me to an, a woman that was there. Her name is Joey Pekis Nelson, and um, she's now at Harvard. And um, I hooked up with her. And, uh, again, I continued doing a lot of research uh, collecting animals in um, in submerged um, environments, uh, mostly caves or um cenotes or pools um, that were uh, cave adapted or adapted to living in low light conditions. And, um, and so, you know, so uh, that, that's kind of how, you know, taking the courses and meeting people along the way and really finding what interests you and piques your interest kind of drove me into this program here in that, you know, I liked, I liked doing things underwater. I like taking notes. I liked detailed work. Um, and um, and then I was introduced to the underwater archaeology program at the state of Wisconsin. And so um, I started working for, um, uh, Russ Green and Kathy Green when they were here at, uh, at the State Historical Society. And, um, we worked on a few projects. Uh, one, my first project with them was, uh, a schooner called the Lumberman. It's a double centerboard schooner. And um, I went out and collected data um, with them and photographs, and we were able to eventually write that up into a national register nomination. So I then felt also that I could protect these resources, these sites that um, you know contribute, give back to um, to these resources that I really enjoyed spending my time on too.
2: So, your initial interest was in, uh, certainly in terms of linking up these these two exploratory uh, avenues of work, uh, initial research, in, interest was in underwater uh, exploration, and then uh, you acquired an interest in archaeology and cultural resources, correct?
3: That's correct.
2: So, let me ask you this. Now, I... Um, I know that the Wisconsin Historical Society is uh, a relatively sophisticated operation. It certainly has been, uh, and it was when I was living in the Midwest and doing some work there. How sophisticated and how, and how extensive is their underwater program today?
3: Um. Well, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd like to say that uh, that we um, have a lot of resources, but I think our resources really are in um, in our volunteers. So we have an awful lot of people who are willing to contribute. So for what we are lacking, um, we're able to bring in technology and um, knowledge uh, through people. And so um, I was uh, I when I uh, volunteered. On the USS Monitor project. I happened to uh, be buddied with um, a a relatively new diver at the time named Evan Kovacs, who worked for, who went to work for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And um, I ran into him at a dive show and um, I, I asked him, you know, he wanted to know what I was doing and I talked to him about what he was doing. And um, he said, well, you know, let me bring some technology out to, um, out and we'll look at these shipwrecks. And so we were able to um, really advance um, our, our understanding of a lot of the shipwrecks rocks, ones that we wouldn't have been necessarily able to dive on and collect a lot of data on um, because we didn't didn't have the diving technology at the time. So they brought cameras and um, they brought uh, the camera mounted uh, system, uh, a scooter mounted camera system and we were able to do detailed uh, mosaics and from there we were able to build uh, 3D models And um, and now we're working with this uh, the SFM structure from motion uh, to be able to create uh, even more in-depth 3D models of these shipwrecks.
2: And you did a lot of sonar side sonar scanning as well
3: we do some uh some side scan sonar uh, work we we don't necessarily look for shipwrecks here our program doesn't so we have an awful lot of resources um that uh, that we haven't had a chance to look for so so our real task is not looking for the shipwrecks but to actually catalog them and then um our uh preservation uh, Uh, Level or our preservation model is to then um, evaluate them for listing on the National Register of Historic Places, so that they can have that federal level of protection added to them.
2: So, if I could summarize, and this is very interesting and something that I I was not aware of, you're not in the exploratory phase, you're sort of more in the data collection phase, correct?
3: That's correct. So, um, there's a lot of guys that are out there right now that are looking, and they have far more sophisticated equipment than we at the you know, the state level could afford. Um, our state, like uh, like many other states, is um, is struggling as far as finances, and so our program is very dependent upon um, upon grant writing, and um, and we our program is eighty five to ninety percent grant funded every year, and so our, you know we go project to project and um, we you know, make the best of it, trying to um, to analyze the the resources that we do have and every year, because of this advancement in technology, because of the people who are out there that are actively searching, we have four to seven more sites added um, added each year
2: uh-huh. Uh, We'll be back with this very fascinating discussion with uh, Tamara Thompson, a maritime archaeologist with the Wisconsin Historical Society, after these words. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Do you want to expand the legacy that you leave behind? Get the inspiration you need by hearing from others who are doing just that. Listen for Your Why with host Nelina Varinas. The show features amazing guests who have saved lives, helped others, and brought forth hope to others around them. By hearing their stories, you can make some stories of your own. Your Why can be heard every Friday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station.
4: VoiceAmerica.com
2: Good afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein with a very fascinating episode of our program, Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest today is Tamara Thompson, a marine archaeologist with the Wisconsin Historical Society Division of uh, their Division of Maritime Preservation and Archaeology and she was telling us in the initial segment that her research and her work concentrates on, largely on data collection of marine res- or, uh, cultural resources, not marine cultural resources but uh, lake lake resources and underwater resources and she has been involved in the nomination of 39 Great Lakes shipwrecks to the National Register of Historic Places, which is sort of the uh, the barometer of significance in archaeological research classification, if you will. And I was asking you where most of your work was, and you had indicated that it was mainly in uh, Lake Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. Most of our research. The research is um, on the shipwrecks or um, submerged resources. We sometimes look at uh, piers and um, wharf sections uh, that have uh, become inundated. And um, and so we're working in both uh, in the um, uh, state bottomlands of Lake Michigan and Lake Superior.
2: So in that connection, and I know I had introduced the program as being very focused on uh, holiday season types of topics, and your holiday season contribution is centered on the schooner, of the Rouse Simmons. Which what did you call it? the the, the Christmas ship? Is that what you call it?
3: It's, um, it's referred to here as the Christmas tree ship,
2: yes. Chris, so tell us about that. Tell <laughs> us what you did and how, uh, how that story emerged and, and, and what it's backed up by scientifically and your work involved with it.
3: Okay. Um, The Christmas tree ship, Rouse Simmons, was discovered in 1971 by a diver out of Milwaukee named Kent Bell Richard. And um, it had, until that time, really been a ghost ship. There had been um, Christmas trees that had washed up um, on Rowley Point. So it's in Lake Michigan. It's in 165 feet of water off of Rowley Point. So it's sort of midway up our um, shoreline on Lake Michigan. And um, the the story is that um, the Rouse Simmons was built in 1868 at the Allen McClellan Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So it was a very typical three-masted schooner. It was designed for the lumber trade, and for much of its career, when she sank, she was uh, 43 years old. So wow. very old for a, a schooner, 43 years old, and yeah. um, and so. Um, for much of her career, she was owned by Charles Hackley, who was a lumber baron out of Muskegon, Michigan. And the ship was really used to, um, to, uh, Support and to um, line his pocket. So she she really did um, bring an awful lot of lumber between uh, across the lake between uh, Michigan and Chicago. And the the uh, Chicago market was very hungry for lumber um, during the late 1870s, early late late 1880s. And um, she only really became known as the, as the Christmas tree ship for the last two years of her life while she was owned by a gentleman named Herman Schooneman. So Herman Schooneman and his, brothers had, uh, ha- his brother had run a business, and um, they, on the last run of the year, they would buy a portion of really um, old and derelict schooners, and um, they would run up to Thompson, Michigan where they would um hire lumberjacks to go into the forest and cut uh, cut trees, and um, then they would load up the schooners with um, with these trees and bring them back into Chicago. And um, it was said that um, Christmas didn't come until to Chicago until Captain Santa arrived on his schooner with the trees. So um, the Ralph Simmons actually sank in 1912, and in 1912 that was um, that was uh, pretty late for schooners to be out on the Great Lakes, um, and so Herman Schuneman was very much banking on the nostalgia of sail. This was well past the age of sail, and so I mean, you, me, and everyone else would probably prefer to go down to the harbor and buy our Christmas tree from the from the deck of a schooner than we would going to you know a lot that um, all of his. Um, all of his competitors were selling from. Many the people were bringing Christmas trees, his competitors were bringing Christmas trees down um, from northern Michigan um, on uh, rail cars. And then they would sell the Christmas trees from um, vacant lots a- around the city, close to the rail yards. And so... Um, Herman Schunemann um, sort of took on this moniker of Captain Santa, and um, he was banking on people coming down to the dock to buy his trees. And there's some conjecture as to um, whether he gave away a number of these trees. There's been a number of books that have been written um, which have uh, celebrated um, his uh, um him giving trees away to orphans and churches and, and, um, and so on. Um, but, uh, but this was really, um, this was his marketing scheme. And so on the 22nd of, uh, November 1912, he loaded Christmas trees at Thompson, Michigan, which is way up at the top of, um, of Lake Michigan, um, very northern, uh, point, and, um, began sailing south. And um, he uh came south um, and as he was passing the Kiwani life saving station at two o'clock in the afternoon he was spotted by the the lookout, um, and um, the ship was that was coming past, which was the Rouse Simmons, was flying an ensign, an American flag upside down from its mainmast, and this was um, a sign of distress. And so the Kiwani Life Saving Station um, only had a rowed lifeboat, so the guys could get in and row it with oars. And so since the vessel had already passed, they telephoned. Because remember, it's 1912. They telephoned down to Two Rivers, which is the next station, and it's just on the other side of the point um, from, from where they were, and um, they, they telephoned them, and it was uh, three o'clock in the afternoon that they received the telephone call that there was a vessel in distress heading their way, heading south down the shoreline, and um, they, uh, they put in their boat. Now, they had a powered lifeboat and um, Captain Soji, who was the uh, commander of the station, put his men to work, and they came out, and by 3.10 in the afternoon, they had rounded Rowley Point. And because they were, um, you know, life, uh, life-saving service Coast Guard men, they, um, they uh, could write into their logbooks, and they, they wrote very diligently about what happened. Um, and they reported that they could see all the way to uh, Kiwani. It was very clear. And um, so they continued north for about an hour. And then they, ha- they saw no debris and no vessels. So assuming that it had turned or headed out into the lake, they then turned and went out into the lake for one hour. So now it's about so it's 3 o'clock when they made the point, 4, 5 o'clock, and they began turning back and heading back to, to two rivers because it had started to get dark and it had started to snow. Okay, so the story, the fable of the Ralph Simmons that everyone likes to tell, and there's plays that go on here and there's songs that are written about this ship, and, mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's hard to it's hard to dispute them when it's such a good story. Is that the right. life-saving service um, saw... The, the vessel threw um, a fleeting um, part in the snowstorm, and there were um, sailors which were standing on the deck yelling, Help me, help me, and then the snowstorm closed in, and um, the Life-Saving Service couldn't find them anymore, and, um, and that was the last that was seen of the Ralph Simmons. Now, the reality is is that the snowstorm didn't start until after the Ralph Simmons was likely on the bottom, so because we plotted out um uh, based on um, you know, we, we well we know where the Ralph Simmons is today because uh, where Kent Ball Richard found it we have the numbers so we put an X on our map, and then um, and then we also plotted on the chart um, about the speed that one of those powered lifeboats would go, and um, we know what time it rounded Raleigh Point and how far it could travel north and out into the lake, and um, and based on um, on our. Um, on our Our thoughts, they circumnavigated where the Ralph Simmons is on the bottom today, so we believe that um, that if the Ralph Simmons had been afloat when those men rounded Raleigh Point that um, that they could have been saved. but we believe the Ralph Simmons was on the bottom before that, that happened so so sometime before three o 'clock in the afternoon, she sank um, now um, so, so that's, that's where a lot of people find that I ruin their Christmas, is that you know, there's, there's been like an awful lot of, like, there's some gorgeous paintings which have been done, and, um, and it, from this part of the country, you, you know, you can't, like, you can't have Christmas with your family without watching, you know, an episode on the, on the Weather Channel or whatever of the Ralph Simmons, and, um, and they do reenactments um, on, um, on, like, Coast Guard cutters come in and they Deliver Christmas trees to the poor, and so all these communities are having these um, these celebratory um, uh, events um, based on this schooner. But in fact, the, the the fact is is that it was a derelict schooner. She had been left sitting at the dock for two years, uncocked. Her um, her captain had neglected the vessel and chosen just to take her out for that last run of the year in hopes of trying to put money in his pocket and feed his family. I understand that, but um, at the risk of all of these men. He also invited those lumberjacks out of the goodness of his heart to take a ride back to Chicago, catch a ride back so that they could be with their families. And so there were 16 men aboard this vessel and they had one yawl with them. And so you know that at three o'clock in the afternoon on the twenty third of November um, when this thing was sinking, there were some really tough decisions that were having to be made um based on the fact that they probably had room for seven or eight in their in their yawl and so um you know it, i i i find it I find it very ironic that that they'll you know they'll celebrate um this vessel you know where and re- make these reenactments in the name of the Ralph Simmons, um, in the fact that their um, their uh, owner, their part owner, was um, was so negligent um, in his responsibilities or his duties to safety of his of his men and passengers.
2: It's interesting. It really is very interesting. And one of the things that you pointed up here um, is is that there is so much of a disconnect between what the myth is involving a lot of these uh, shipwrecks. And, of course, I'm talking about some of the well-known ones. Mm -hmm. uh, Monitor, the Monitor, for example, obviously the Titanic and the Edmund Fitzgerald. And, and the reality, and I think what a lot of people would be interested in discussing and, and listening to is how much you can verify reality based on the type of research and the type of exploration and investigation that you do as an underwater archaeologist. In other words, how do you put together definitive information that fly in the face of a lot of these myths that have gotten so much popular appeal?
3: Well, that's what's really interesting about shipwrecks is that it's it's historic archaeology, so everything is based on these primary sources or can right. be fact checked with them. Mm-hmm. So, so with Ralph Simmons, you know, you, we didn't we don't have any survivors, so we can't go back to the depositions um, that may have been taken of men that you know were on the ship when it sank. Um, there also is no note in a the bottle. There was um, there were a lot of fakes that happened uh, in this time. Period and so there ended up being a fake note in a bottle that showed up. There, there, there was um, it was uh, disputed right away, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, and so that 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 is another story that people bring up that it's just not true. Um, and um, and uh, you know, so what we have is we have the the Coast Guard record, you have the Life Saving Service record, so you can look at this. They reported the weather. So, um, you know, there was no gale. The gale didn't happen until, uh, you know, the storm didn't pick. It was fresh wind um, at noon. It was, um, you know, it was uh, picked up to strong wind at uh, 6, you know, at sunset. Um, and then um, it wasn't until midnight the next day that, that they report gale. So sometime between sunset and midnight is, it picked up to a gale. So, you know, we think the Ralph Simmons was on the bottom at 3, so that was, you know, Sometime between fresh wind and strong, but you know, still, so that you know, there is no storm. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, the um, the snowstorm. You know, there, it doesn't even report snow in the in the lifesaving station log until after six p.m. So, yeah. so that didn't happen. You know, and the men wrote their account of you know searching, and there was there was no flotsam, there was no debris. Um, they found nothing of the ship; it had completely vanished. But you know, we knew where it was for years and years because of um, the Christmas trees that continually washed up on the beach on Raleigh Point. And in 1923, the the wallet of Herman Schooneman came ashore, and that was picked up and... um Uh, I think by fishermen, and uh, eventually, I believe it was turned over to the family, Um, and um, they found inside um, an article talking about uh, Captain Santa and the Christmas season coming to Chicago, and a picture of uh, that he had taken as a clipping, and uh, folded in wax paper and put inside his wallet to protect it because he was so proud of you know this this marketing opportunity he had he had he had taken and, um, you know, and, the other thing too is if you can go and you look at um, you can go to the National Archives. We have a, a great uh, archive here in Chicago um, of uh, of the this, all the Great Lakes resources end up there. And um, we looked through there and we came up with a lawsuit. Um, Herman Schuneman about five years prior to owning the Simmons, had left working um, as a sailor and he took up um, owning a bar. And so he owned uh, he owned an establishment, and unfortunately, it didn't do well, um, he ended up in bankruptcy proceedings. So we know that these were hard times for him. He was probably just trying to feed his family, and he just made a really bad mistake in, um, in weighing out um, whether he should um, you know, put safety measures into making sure his boat would stay afloat or, um, or into you know, making a profit uh, at the end of the season. Right. So, and unfortunately, it came at the expense of, of the men that he uh, he had aboard.
2: You would think that uh, with with those guys who clearly, used, as you said, they were lumberjacks and there were people who were experienced uh, probably in, in the preparation of the lumber and loading these on the on the ship or in the schooner, that they would have been suspicious that if the ship had not been in commission for two years that they would have checked to see if it was seaworthy, but I guess that didn't happen.
3: They they sailed it the year before. Um, uh-huh. they sailed it during uh, again uh, just for the the Christmas tree run. Um, Herman Schuneman was only a one tenth owner in the vessel, so uh, ah, one eighth okay. owner. Sorry, and he also uh, had another partner named Captain Nelson, who was also aboard uh, the ship with him. Um, and then um, it was primarily owned by um, by a gentleman named Manus Bonner out of the uh, Beaver Island Lumber Company, and And so, um, you know, I believe that he was probably the one that contracted the, um, the lumberjacks to be able to help in this, um, in, in the scheme, and um, and so you know, again, this was really there, and this was not his first Christmas tree ship. Uh, right, the Christmas we tree that. ship trade was something that was continued in on, with his family. In um, 1898, his brother um, was lost aboard the the Thal, which was um, lost just um, just off the port of Chicago as it was bringing Christmas trees in for the season. And the only reason that Herman Was not aboard, was that um, his uh, twin daughters had been born, and so they had he stayed back to take care of his wife, and um, so he did not make it make that run the year. So, I mean, that should have been um, sort of. telling that maybe this was not what they wanted, that they wanted to continue to do. They should probably put more um, time into his vessels. But if you do look very closely at the images that exist of a lot of these Christmas tree schooners, that was really, um, the idea was to put very little into them, get shake as much as you could uh, out of the last years of a schooner, which may not be capable of carrying other commodity products, Um, But you still could be able to put uh, trees on it. A lot of people thought that the lumber and trees aboard would make them float.
2: We're going to have to take a break here. uh, We will resume this very fascinating discussion uh, with uh, maritime archaeologist Tamara Thompson right after these words. Don't go away.
4: on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Most successful people have a strategy for their personal and professional advancement. They understand the value of learning from other people who know how to reach their goals and enjoy their lives. You can live life on your terms, at home, work, play, and in the community. Join Lori and industry leaders as they share practical insights with you. Only on In It Together with Lori Lynn Green. Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety.
2: with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And the myth-reality dichotomy is especially appropriate uh, to today's discussion, we are looking at maritime archaeology, specifically in the uh, vicinity of the Great Lakes and in the Great Lakes themselves. My guest is Tamara Thompson, who is a marine archaeologist with the Wisconsin Historical Society, and we had been discussing uh, the Christmas Tree Ship and uh, the Captain Santa of that sh- ship, whose name was Herman Schuneman. And we discussed in our early sec- segment, our earlier segment, about the reality of the chronology and the sequence of developments in the downing or the uh, sinking of that ship. And uh, Tamara Thompson has actually done the submerged research, if we want to call it that on the actual ship itself and she's come up with a number of reasons for the ship sinking and why don't we discuss that Tamara, and tell us a little bit more about what you actually learned from your underwater exploration at the ship site
3: (laughs) so um so we received a grant from wisconsin coastal management to be able to look at um what was on the bottom thousands of people have um have dived on this shipwreck over the years but no one had really looked into why it was there, what um, what may have happened uh, to the ship in um, in its final hours, and so we did um, a phase two archaeological survey um, of the the wreck site on the bottom in 2008, and um, we found that. Um, The Christmas trees, they had been reported to have been loaded um, up to 8 feet with very little freeboard on uh, the deck when she left Thompson. And many of those Christmas trees remain stacked in her hold today. But what we found very interesting was that um, there are, there's no evidence of um, decking left on the ship at all. And um, comparable ships that we see at, at um, uh, similar depths um, in this very area still have remnants of their decking there. And so we started looking at this, and we discovered that uh, the uh, deck beams actually have channels in them, and um, so we believe that in you know this very pe- period where this uh, ship was built, which was um, 1868, they had a practice um, where they would uh, pickle the wood. They would actually impregnate the wood with um, with salt water brine to try to preserve it better. And so we believe that maybe they would have salted these uh, these channels um, that were uh, placed into the deck beams and so and we all know if you have um, iron nails or iron and you introduce salt to it what happens rust so we believe that maybe um, they the the decking had le- lifted on the ship and um, and that may have contributed to um, to more water coming aboard uh, we also noticed that um, they were a we don't know exactly what sank the ship, but we do know that uh, they were preparing to anchor when the ship went down. Um, we see that they have a lot of items that, um, that would have been used for anchoring. So they have a hook which would have been uh, used to take the anchor away from the, uh, from the side of the hull of the ship to, to lower it on the port side. And we see that anchor chain actually go down um, it, uh, out of the hawse pipe, over the bow Sprit, which it normally wouldn't, and then uh, into the sand and continue on. And um, so we followed that chain out, and the anchor is still there out in the sand, uh, 170 feet away from the shipwreck. Well, Uh it's in 165 feet of water. So 170 feet of chain isn't enough to be able to anchor a ship. I mean, you would, especially even a strong wind, um, you would need, um, you know, 10 to 1. And they probably didn't even have that much anchor chain. Aboard. So, what were they doing? So, we know at the time that that um, that they were preparing to anchor. They might have um, tried and uh, gotten so much water aboard that the water came forward into the bow area, causing the bow to dip. It may have caught the anchor and then broken the bowsprit off. And we know that it went down by the bow because all of the rigging, um, all of the masts, have been thrown forward of the ship, and all of that is laid out on the bottom. We had a wonderful man that came out with us on the survey who had worked as a master rigger um, Mm -hmm. out in San Diego, and so he was able to identify all of the pieces of spar and rigging that was there um, on, on the ship. And we know that, um, that, uh, uh, again, they may have been just trying to, um, come, and she's also not pointed south. She's pointed back towards the shore. So we know that, uh, they were either trying to come back into shallower water so they could anchor and then, uh, inadvertently, um, let the anchor go and took this nosedive to the bottom. Um, or, um, they, um, Uh, They uh, were trying to put out a sea anchor or some way of slowing the vessel down so that they could launch the all-boat and and ultimately um, uh, try to rescue themselves from the ship.
2: So you're able to reconstruct not just the events, but the sequence of events based on what the disposition of all these disparate parts were, and basically put together a very comprehensive story of uh, what the data seem to be telling you based on the location of the artifacts of the various parts of the ship, which is really what what archaeology is all about. So you can provide that kind of infield, if you want to call it that, infield reconstruction that really uh, erases some of these myths and allows people to assess the situation objectively?
4: Well,
3: hopefully it adds also more um, context to what people are seeing on the bottom when they go down to visit the shipwreck as well. So, or we also have quite a number of people who, um, who have ROVs now that are in our area, and so they'll want to experience the ship, um, you know, from their boat. They'll drop a little uh, video ray in and have it go down and look at the ship, and so maybe this will be able to help them understand sort of the full breadth of what was happening in the last minutes of the vessel.
2: Right. And are you still working on that, or is that pretty much a shut case?
3: We've, um, we've actually um, published our field notes on this, so um, it's, uh, it's available online on our website, which is wisconsinshipwrecks.org, and it's called Myth and Mysteries, the Christmas Tree Ship Rouse Simmons.
2: <laughs> Will you give us that uh, email, uh, that uh, web address again?
3: Yes, it's um, wisconsinshipwrecks.org.
2: And what kind of projects are you working on right now?
3: Um, Right now we're doing the really sexy part of archaeology. We're um, we're writing up our field notes from the year. We're trying to process (laughs) National Register nominations um, over the winter time. Um, But uh, we had three new shipwrecks that were discovered right off Raleigh Point um, by a wonderful woman who um, retired and bought herself a powered parachute. Do you know what that is? It's like an ultralight um, with a parachute on the back and she loves flying the shoreline or name is Susie Johnson, and she's also a very curious woman, and so she was my pen pal for a couple of years, and she sent me images of things she saw while flying, and um, we've had an awful lot of sand movement, um, coastal erosion happen in our area, and that has um, fortunately exposed many shipwrecks along our coast, and so we're busily writing up these things that Susie has found with her airplane. <laughs>
2: Well, you uh, you bring up a very intriguing point, and one that I think we all need to be cognizant of, and that is specifically shoreline erosion. And for archaeologists, fortunately or unfortunately, that's a rare opportunity to look at uh, cultural resources that would otherwise not be exposed. I mean, this is yet another manifestation of the entire climate change debate and yeah. what we find. And certainly in this part of the country, Hurricane Sandy has exposed landforms and landscapes and archaeological sites that would otherwise have been sealed in. Uh, Obviously, this is not necessarily a good thing, but, uh, you know, it's knowledge and it is certainly something that can be brought to the fore and elaborated upon and investigated. And hopefully, that kind of documentation will unravel a number of other mysteries with respect to events, tragedies, in some cases catastrophes that have occurred, and will teach us a little bit about our heritage and, and what happened in the past. Um, I'm excited that you're doing this kind of work, and obviously uh, our our listenership can go to your website and explore it a little bit in, in depth and get updated as to what kinds of things you're doing. You are publishing these results as well?
3: We are. We, uh, we publish uh, every um, March. We pr- publish all of our field notes. We write everything up um, as a description of what we've handled um, or what we've uh, looked at. And, um, and then we, uh, we also uh, have the National Register nominations, many of them which are uh, now available through the National Park Service site.
2: And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end this very fascinating discussion with my special guest, Tamara Thompson, marine archaeologist from the Wisconsin Historical Society. Thank you so much for appearing on the program.
3: Thanks for having me. Merry Christmas, everybody.
2: Merry Christmas, everyone, indeed. And we will have another episode of our program next week. In the meantime, stay tuned and keep aware that historic preservation is an ongoing operation and it's the citizens' responsibility to help out. Until next time, this is Joe Schuldenrein saying good evening.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.